that started his career on stage with Sam Watterson and Hamlet, uh, played with Michael J. Fox in his movie debut, and helped Rick Baker win his first Academy Award for makeup and the iconic David Kessler in Dr. Werewolf in London. Here's David Naughton. Let's hi, guys. Uh, oh, yeah. So we could actually sing and do stuff. Okay. All right. Yeah. We're, we're just. <laughs> We're not quite ready for requests, but thanks very much. That has been on a loop on my Alexa lately, um, making it, but you said it was re-recorded. Yeah, I did actually do a re-recording in the original key 40 years later. Just wow. Yeah, just sort of uh, because somebody you know, wanted it. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. Well, for those of you that don't know, Making It was a TV series, 1970s, late 70s. Yeah. Has uh, yeah. anyone not heard of this song? It's a, it was a disco song, and it was based on a series that I did called Making It. This is like in 1979 for uh, Paramount. They had the rights to Saturday Night Fever, and of course, there'd be a spinoff for a TV show. So that's what this uh, series was. And I, I, um, I was... Uh, in living in New York, and uh, the producers of Making It the series came out to the East Coast, and uh, they knew me from these soda commercials that I'd been doing, these musical spots for Dr. Pepper, which was a four-year contract that I had uh, landed in New York. Uh, as many actors do, they get if they can get commercial uh, agents in New York, it gives you an opportunity to try to make some money, actually make a living as an actor. Uh, while you're looking for theater gigs in New York. So they knew me from this Dr. Pepper thing, brought me out to LA to do this series, which at the time was unusual because it was 13 episodes on the air, half hour sitcom, ABC, uh, Miller Milkus. These were the guys that brought you Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley. They were behind it. So they had a lot of clout with both the networks and people at Paramount. So it was just, we're doing this show and we'd like you to play this part. Now what I should just tell you about, this is kind of an interesting story from, so I hadn't done series television before, but my background was musical theater, really. Uh, you know, I grew up in Connecticut, had a great, you know, doing the musicals in high school. Uh, then I decided to go to, to uh, college. I went to the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, and which many people think is Penn State. At least that's where I, you know, was. No, this is Penn. It's over on the East Coast. And <clears throat> I got interested more in acting then and did a lot of extracurricular thing, pen players, and you know, got into drama, as well as you know, doing cabaret stuff, uh, musical theater, that was still my thing. So I went to Lambda, London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art, auditioned in New York for this drama school. After I got out of college, I'm going, do I really want to do this just like grad school? You know, I, I, well, I should get some training, you know. So I auditioned in New York for this drama school, and I said, hey, we have a three-year program. A three-year program? Uh, that's a little long for uh, what I had in mind, but I said, sure, you know, London, what fun. So I went to London to study uh, acting, and the thing was, it was I wanted to see one of the, probably one of the best things that really I would ever experienced was living in London as an American acting student and seeing all these great people on, in the West End on the British stage. Laurence Olivier, John Gielgud, uh, you know, Alec Guinness, Paul Schofield, I saw all these guys in plays and it was and we had a number of these people come to talk to us at Lambda as students and we'd have please welcome sir you know John Gilgood and he'd come in and, and the, 
this, what I got was, the sense of it was, that these are real people, you know, they have this job, and the job is that they're actors, and it's not such a, you know, an unattainable goal is to be, you know, uh, a working actor, which is really all I wanted to set out to do was just to be a working actor. So along came these producers, cut to, I only stayed there two years because that was enough for me. I, I've been in school way too long and went back to New York. And of course, the first audition I went for was for uh, New York Shakespeare Festival, Joseph Papp's production of Hamlet starring Sam Waterston. And I go, well, I'm fresh from drama school where we had done Shakespeare and uh, so I felt so qualified. Went in and got, a, got hired and cast and joined Actors' Equity, which is the you know, Actors' Union for theater here in the States. Uh, and I uh, got my first taste of professional, you know, wow, I'm a professional actor and I've only been in New York two months. Wow, they say New York so hard. Well, as soon as that show was over, which was about an eight week run, you know, over the winter period of 76, I didn't work. It was like, hey, now you're an out of work actor, welcome. <laughs> welcome, welcome to what it's like. And it was at that point that I was starting to find, try to find an agent because it's so hard to, you know, to not be represented and try to find uh, you know, union work. What I found out was I was sort of young to be joining the union because that puts you out of, uh, you can't do any non-union stuff. And that's really where you can get a lot of experience as a young actor coming up. You know, nobody's interested in hiring you long term when you're 24 or 5, 6 years old. You know, maybe you get small roles, but I felt so trained and ready when I came out of drama school to do I wanted to do big, bigger parts, so I was looking to, for regional theater. I said, I'll go anywhere to do, you know, and I didn't, you know, this, I think the, the whole theme of this story of my own career is whatever you plan on, it's going to be different, you know, and I'm sure in your own work, in your own lives, whatever you really plan on doing, um, it's rare that you, you know, stay on that path, I think. Uh, I, can, I, I can only really speak for myself, but I had these plans of playing, you know, all the major roles in Shakespeare, to, you know, until I was 40. And then I have all those other roles to play as I got older, you know, and then to play, you know, all the kings, and then all the, you know, and then later play all the, you know, and see how many roles you can get under your belt, like so many actors who have played, that I looked up to, who had played so many different roles. Well, I became a pepper, you know. I, was a, I went from Shakespeare to, hey, you're a pepper. And that totally changed uh, a lot. For one thing, it, it gave me the, the the chance to to make a living as an actor. I mean, I didn't have to be a waiter. I used to say as an actor, I'm just acting, but I'm really an aspiring waiter, you know, which was sort of a joke because so many of my friends were working in restaurants and doing those kinds of jobs that you you have to keep yourself available, you know, that was the whole idea. Is if you can leave, you know, you might get a job. Uh, this is not even answering your question, I guess, about making it. But, you know, lo and behold, you know, the, the point is, I guess I'm trying to make is that you know, I didn't know, and, and you don't know, you know, how you take the tiger by the tail, where's this going to lead? And that's sort of been a mantra I've had my whole career in terms of some of the choices I've made, the, 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 the roles that I've taken, um, some of the jobs that, you know, things that didn't work out. I mean, my resume is a lot longer than what people would know me for because so many of those projects don't necessarily, you know, out of all the films and TV projects and pilots that you do and plays that you're in, None of them take off the way, you know, you get every now and then you get an, an experience like for me, American World in London, that just doesn't quit. Or for me, this, this song, Making It, which was funny because 
So here, here I am in New York, and I meet these producers, and they go, are you interested in the series? And I was in a play, an off-Broadway play, at the New York Shakespeare Festival, and I don't even know if you knew who Joe Papp was. He was like the guy in New York theater for new stuff. Joseph Papp, if you could work for Joe Papp at the New York Shakespeare Festival, you know, you were going to be one of these guys that um, you could have a long career in theater, but he didn't pay. You know, he was not paying, making two or three hundred bucks a week, even in the 70s, trying to make a living and live in New York is really difficult. Um, so I got this job for 13 on the air episodes on an ABC sitcom as the lead. And I had to go tell Joe Papp that I was dropping out of this off-Broadway show. And he completely embarrassed me in front of this big cast, like, hey, so we got this guy here. Who is it? Who, you know, really demeaning and made me feel like I was making a really bad decision to leave this little $200 a week job and make some money <laughs> some, and have an opportunity to be in, in television, which I knew when I got to California that was going to be something that um, I was ready for. And, and, and so this, this job came up making it, and I had to talk myself into, or had to talk them into, letting me audition for the song, because initially I was hired to play, there was basically two guys in the show making it. There was the young guy who was sort of a roughly, you know, the John Travolta type, but he worked, you know, and he lived in Passaic, New Jersey, and, he, and went to the disco at night, where his brother was the real disco king. So I was hired to play that the older brother. Well, the actor that they hired to play the younger guy, who was the student, and you know, was like his first job. I don't know where they got this kid, like right out of Passaic, New Jersey. I think they really went for, he's so New Jersey, this kid. But he didn't know anything about really acting. And when you're doing a sitcom, it's a combination of theater because you're in front of a live audience, and television because you got four cameras on the floor. And it's a choreography where you have to go to places where the cameras are moving, and it's a, it really is choreography. Um, and the kid couldn't cut it, so they fired him, and they asked me the day before we were shooting, we want you to play the other part, Billy, the kid, and we're going to recast your part. I went, really? I, I said, sure, you know, I, said, I guess. So, I mean, I learned the script overnight, we shot it the next day, and it was the first of the series. But we hadn't done the title song yet, so I said, well, you know, this is based on my sort of point of view, growing up in Passaic, New Jersey, you know, trying to make it in college, and living at home, and going to the discos, and having a girlfriend, and all these sort of things. Uh, I'd love to get a shot at the song. And they go, well, I think we got to Four Seasons, you know. And they said, well, here's, a, here's what they call it, the rough track, you know. So it's making it, and you hear this, you know. I'm going, well, I'd really like to give it a shot because it's sort of my point of view. I mean, the lyrics are, I'm solid gold, I've got the goods, they stand when I walk through the neighborhoods. So I had to talk myself into getting an audition for these guys. And it was these two songwriters who were very successful, Dino Fakaris and Freddie Perrin. And they were, uh, they had a number of tracks on the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack, all owned by Paramount. This is where we were doing making it. so. This song was also tied into, they had rights to everything that Paramount had. And, and Freddie Perrin had written Shake Your Groove Thing, Reunited with uh, Peaches and Herb. You know, those were current. So going in to meet these guys was like, uh, it, you know, I thought I'd seen everything until you start meeting guys in the record business. 
and they're kind of like, you don't know what who your what their background is even. But these two guys were real, you know, musicians. Freddie was ama just amazing on these keyboards. You know, you've seen these studios; they don't even have them anymore. They'd be about the size of this of these tables. You know, and Freddie's in there, and he had, as I said, reunited a Shake Your Groove thing, and he had this snake in it. So, <clears throat> and Freddie was his lyric assistant. So I, they said, well, you know, let's start. Let's let's see. This was over Thanksgiving weekend. I'll never forget. And I'm going, well, let's see if I'm going to get get a shot at this. And so I said, started the song. And he goes, where are you from? I said, well, I'm from uh, Connecticut. He goes, well, it sounds kind of Connecticut. I went, oh. I said, I went to school in Philly. He goes, give me Philly. Give me Philly. <laughs> that was the direction I got. So I went, okay, I'm going to get Philly. I didn't know what that meant, but it was a little more, I'm just going to sing better, louder, but the difference in studio singing, you know, you don't have to project for sure, I mean, and it was, you know, the same way that I had to talk my way into the Dr. Pepper soundtracks, they had hired me to just be the, the guy dancing down the street to sing to someone else's studio singer voice, I said, no, 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 wait a second, I'm a theater guy. If I'm going to be the pepper guy, I'm going to be the voice as well as the on camera. I mean, come on. And I went, okay, so I had to go in and audition for that. So that had prepared me to deal with Freddie Perrin and his direction of being more fiddly. So we cut this track in a in really over the course of two sessions. Um, and, you know, it's making it in the theater. This time in life, I'm making it, da da da. Pick the key, the original key. Uh, we knocked this thing out and we'd have to double it. In other words, sing over the tracks. You have two tracks of vocals because you have all these other mu musical tracks. Yeah. And they're mixing and doing and they're going like, this is good. You know, I'm going, oh, this is fun. Well, long story short, so this is be becomes the title song for the show. You can see it on YouTube, the credits where we're doing this show, making it. Making it debuts in, in uh, February or, Mar or January. Uh, 1979 behind Mork and Mindy. Come on, one of the biggest shows. All right. We're, that's our lead in. Up next, making it. Well, making it just goes to the roof. I mean, we're we've got those gigantic numbers that you know the Nielsen ratings, which at the time were so important. And second week, boom. You know, Mork and Mindy, boom, followed by making it. Well, they think we're on our own. By the third show, they move us. Oh. Yep. I know. You know what's happening. You know what's coming. Yeah. They moved us to Friday night, uh, opposite the Hulk, and Different Strokes, a top ten killed us. And away we went. And we didn't have, we probably aired six more episodes, and were canceled. Um, and it was really like a shock, because we thought, based on those, you know, those initial ratings, right. and the sort of feedback we were getting, and just the Marshall. fun. Yeah, it was Gary Marshall was involved. Yeah. Miller Milkus, we thought, were protecting, you know, us. And, why would you move us to a night, you know, the ABC, we're going to put our show, making it up against these bigger shows and, and killed us. <laughs> Meanwhile, this, the record gets released on RSO label. This was the Robert Stigwood organization that had the BGs and they were fighting. And I was, that would ultimately became sort of collateral damage in that Robert Stigwood dissolved the label and all of us that were assigned with them that was sort of the end of our record, you know, career, um, in a sense. I, I had always, at the time, was not pushing that because I always wanted to be considered an actor. And in those days, and still today, you're so buttonholed by, you know, what are you, are you a singer? 
Are you an actor? Are you a dancer? What what are what exactly you want? What do you mean Shakespeare? You know, and uh, so this song takes off and goes to number five in the top forty. I was the highest ranked, uh, as they call, artist on the RSO label a couple of weeks in July of 1979. Shocking to me, you know. So I was finding myself on Rockin' New Year's Eve, uh, Dick Clark's, you know, American Bandstand. You know, live, it's Merv live from Las Vegas with special guest. So I'm going, this is so fun in the sense that you have no idea, no preparation for this sort of stuff. What's it going to be like? But as an actor, and this whole idea was, it was starting to come around going, you know, remember that whole idea about playing Richard II, you know, in a little theater in Minneapolis? Well, let's put that, you know, on the side and we'll uh, just take this as far as it goes. So that was an, just another one of those experiences of like, don't say no, just go with it, go with the flow and let's see where, what happens. So that's what that was about. It was really one of the last big disco hits because yeah, around know, that time was Disco Sucks and oh yeah. Disco. Well, I have to tell you, and one example, I was sitting in a theater watching, I can't remember what movie it was coming on, so there's these previews of coming attractions, and in comes a trailer for, De for Detroit Rock City in which they're making fun of making it. These guys are sitting, you know, they're driving down hating disco, and what song are they playing is making it, and I'm like, just shocked. I mean, like, I was like, what? That's my song. They're killing it. And, and Kiss, Kiss never made a disco album. Yet. No, you know, and it was tough. And at the same time, well, Saturday Meatballs sold that song. Well, that song, because yeah. it was owned by Paramount, yeah. and, make, and Meatballs was a, was a making it, uh, uh, was a Paramount movie, they used the song for a scene with Bill Murray and they're on the dance floor, and they start playing Making It. So the, from the radio, the jacket went from, from the hip TV series making it to from the hit movie Meatballs. From, you know, then there's the compilations, RSO, then, then there was TV tunes, Rhino Records and Tube Tunes, you know, theme songs from 70s and 80s. So there are all these different versions of this song that yeah. was being, you know, made. Um, but, uh, it, you know, in any case, and there's a there's a great YouTube of your interview with Dick Clark is out there. Oh, is there? Yeah. Well, he there's he's one of those guys. A guy that lip syncs to it in front of tinfoil. So he was one of those guys. Him. You know, you're dealing with not just Dick Clark. It's Dick Clark Productions. He's the guy. He is also legendary in terms of all the people that have been on that show. And yet he's the nicest guy you'd ever want me to be like talking to your neighbor. You know, it's Dick Clark. I always really respect the fact that he wasn't an asshole, you know, I mean, the guy was really nice. So uh, throughout all this, and then Dr. Pepper was continuing to come back, you're, and I used to, I'd have these single one-year contracts because I, um, w they didn't know how long it was going to go, you know, this whole idea of this Pepper theme, but that thing, that, that caught, caught on, you know, to the, to the point where um, I was trying to get over the Detroit Rock City, you know, this, and along comes Saturday Night Fever, uh, Saturday Night Live, and there's a skit where Bill Murray dresses up as the Pepper guy, and he comes in, and Lorraine wants to be a Pepper, and he, there's a knock on the door, and he comes goofy doofy dancing with his black wig on, and they're going, "Hi, Steve!" And I'm going, "Damn, they got the name wrong," you know. Uh, but again, making a parody of the whole idea of this Pepper campaign, which again, you got to say, now I mean, I took it so personally. It was like, oh my God, you know. What does it mean I have to re rethink this whole thing? The point is, it's like, hey, you know, 
it's so it's becoming so well known that they can make fun of it and uh, go with that. And so you've arrived. When yeah, in a certain sense, you're part of the fabric of people who understand what this is about. And that was, I have to say, it was a terrific, uh, fun thing to do. Was the pepper commercials. What it taught me was, by the first year, you know, I mean, the audition itself in New York was 400 guys, you know, with numbers on, and they're just taking numbers down and teaching us a routine and moving back, just like any other show, if you can imagine, if you ever saw, you know, any show where there's auditions for dancers, that's what it was like, and I'm going, what am I doing here? You know, because I'm in New York where all these major dancers are, but it turned out, you know, I was one of the straight guys they called back, Dr. Pepper's in Dallas, Texas, that had something to do with it, as far as who they were going to pick for their spokesman. I mean, it was pretty obvious I wasn't the best dancer to, uh, to be considered, but I did have a attitude that was not particularly, um, you know, certainly not threatening and friendly, and and that was what they were went after. And I also knew that the star of this commercial was the pepper, you know, the actual drink. Uh, and that became a successful thing. But what it taught me was after the first year, that by the second year, I'm in the auditions now, auditioning people in terms of watching actors come in, which I'd never seen before. You know, I've never been in the room when uh, I've only been in there as a, you know the one on the, who's doing the audition. But I've never watched other auditions from a casting standpoint, and that was really eye-opening for me in terms of how you know how does anybody even get a job in terms of it doesn't have have anything to do with your qualifications it's just subjective the certain person likes hey I just liked I liked her I like redheads I like you know and this committee that would change and, and cast these parts have no idea uh, about the person that auditioning other than to say just going on a very subjective look like yeah well, let's go with that person and and from the from the actress standpoint, you're thinking, how did I lose that job? You know, what did I do wrong? Um, what was it they were looking for? And none of those things really matter at all from from an actress. So I was trying to put that out of my mind going forward with the rest of my career. Was it's just find out what you do and give them that. You know, here's what I do. You like it or you don't. It's nothing to do with how good I could be or not be or wrong for you're either going to like it or you're not. And it's that simple in getting a job in an audition. Um, qualified or not, you have to assume you're qualified. But, uh, and then you see so many actors who are so successful who were never qualified. You know, and you kind of go, wow, how, how do you explain that guy's success? Or how did she get so big and have her own show and not really have anything? And you can't, you can't figure it out. I mean, and that drives a lot of actors crazy. It drives you out of the business, too. You know, you go on to do something else because it becomes so hard to not only have no success, I mean, you know, you keep banging your head against the wall. At some point you have to say, you know, maybe this isn't for me. Or you, somebody says, hey, let's try it. And that happened to me early, so I knew that what it felt like to have a little bit of success, um, to keep trying anyway. Now, you had a lot of family-friendly type fare that you were doing at that time, including a Disney movie that isn't really a Disney movie. But oh, family friend, yeah. Like, you know, I also mentioned I'm, 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 uh, my older brother James. James Naughton is an actor. I mean, I'm sure you've all seen him and stuff. Uh, and it was not. It was kind of cool in a sense to have an older brother who's an actor. But I mean, it was a double edge. It's a whole other topic. But you know, his success was coming, was happening, and I was still wondering, is this something I want to do? And 
and these sort of, you know, this is, this is an example of uh, this movie, Midnight Madness, comes along, and it's a silly little, you know, it was originally called The All Night Treasure Hunt. It was gonna be shot at night in Burbank, uh, a Disney film. Now, the problem was with Disney was they had the black hole. Do you remember the black yes. hole? Yeah. And this was like their first PG movie, and they were freaked out, like, but we're in our image. Everything is G. And so the black hole, and it was kind of tanking in terms of its you know, success. And so we came along, and we were just going to be a PG movie too. And so they just couldn't bear. So they put us on their Buena Vista label, which was okay. Does that what does that mean? We're still shooting on the Disney lot. Well, when it came time to promote this movie, which had Michael J. Fox in it playing my little brother, he was like an 18-year-old playing 13 and 12, and he looks it. I mean, he was always so such a young baby-faced kid. Um, when we did the promotion for the movie, they said, don't mention Disney. Oh, okay. Where'd you guys shoot it? Um, over in Burbank, you know. And we shot it out at night, too, which was an interesting way to shoot. You, you know, you, your life turns upside down if you've ever had work nights. I mean, you know, we work, our call would be at like 5 p.m., and we worked till the sun came up. See you tomorrow, five nights, you know, a week of that. And it was just, you know, it's basically five teams playing an all-night treasure hunt. Uh, what was interesting also about this movie was we had two directors, co-directors, co-writers, two young guys, and they had to get permission from the Directors Guild to co-direct, which was not something that had been done before, or at least was frowned upon, you know, one director in the Directors Guild. So we basically had two teams, or two, two crews, I mean, two complete companies, shooting one in one place and the other shooting in another place, and we'll meet you at the end of the movie. So that was really odd. And we all shot at the end of the movie in downtown Los Angeles at this hotel, uh, the Buena Vista Hotel. The Bu yeah, Buena Vista? Yeah. No, the Buena, Buena Vista was the label. Yeah. The uh, Bonaventure, the Bonaventure Hotel. The Bonaventure Hotel downtown LA, and we worked from like Friday to Sunday. It was one of the most expensive one-day shoots that Disney had to fork up because you go into serious overtime on Saturday, and we worked all day Saturday and Saturday night. Rap Sunday morning, and uh, this movie became you know something that we weren't supposed to talk about. Midnight Madness, it's been out. Uh, it's, it was pretty successful, and I you know on my tables in the course when I do these different conventions, people come up and they go, um, "Do you have anything from Midnight Madness?" <laughs> like, don't be embarrassed. You know, it was kind of a fun little show, and you know it it, it was what it was. Yeah, it predated Touchstone before they really knew yeah. what they were going to do with their PG-related material. Exactly. Yeah, Buena Vista. And we did, as I said, did some publicity for it. Yeah, I'm not sure if I, if I checked Disney Plus and I'm like, eh, they, they're still not really embracing it. Yeah, and we were waiting for DVD, you know, to come out. Yeah. It, it's on YouTube. Yeah, it is on YouTube. Yeah. That well, does work. Uh, the movies end up on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah, that's... That usually means a lot of lawsuits going on. Yeah. Now, your your brother was the star of Planet, Planet of the, the Apes. Apes. And you were in there in season one, episode seven, everybody. Okay. As, uh, Dr. I, I didn't have that fact, to my knowledge. But yeah, I went out to LA to visit my brother. And this was the series, uh, Planet of the Apes, right. which became so expensive to shoot because of all the, the, the makeup. Primarily, it was like a three-hour process, and they had so many people to make up that they were just 
making so much money before they even shot. The actors were making so much money, uh, and taking it off afterwards, you had to spend an hour or so. So it became really prohibitively expensive. But he was one of the astronauts, and I went out to visit him. Once uh, well, like it's you know seventies, I was still in drama school, but I had the uh, required brown eyes. And they went, "You could be a champ." I go, "As a matter of fact, I could, if I could, <laughs> if, if I could get the chance." And and they gave me a chance, so I got to be a champ with a couple of lines on this show, which was very nerve-wracking, because one of the things they said, don't do anything Roddy McDowell does. I go, well, he does everything. <laughs> what's, what's left as a chimp? Because you watch Roddy McDowell. And the thing was, it was a Dick Smith makeup. Now, Dick Smith taught Rick Baker. Right. Rick Baker made my life very miserable. But, you know, so when I saw Matt Rick, and we'll get to that, uh, you have to tell him that, you know, I've already done a, you know, a Dick Smith makeup. What? That, that was what I was going to ask you. You have been in probably two of the most iconic makeups of the entire 20th century. Well, that's a little strong. But, I, I don't think it is. I think but thank you for that. But I will say, yeah, you know, uh, Dick Smith certainly, you know, is considered one of the best. And so many people uh, learned from him, not the least of which was Rick Baker, who took it that next step. And, and But the thing about it, looking back at that show, is that the makeup was pretty primitive. I mean, these masks, it was like a two-piece mask, you know, appliance. One would be the chin part, and then there was the facial part. So there's this half, and then this half. And then, you know, the mouth worked. But it was so, it sounded like this, you know? So there are apes talking, and you're kind of like, okay, now listen here. Well, how do you do a TV series where the whole time, you know, is this, this, this weird sounding voices? But they did, and they had a number of good actors in the show. And they did a number of movies, but the series itself, as I said, I think the reason that it didn't last was the cost of, you know, these guys were buying homes going, yeah, I'm an ape, I don't ever talk, but I get made up every day working 17 hours a day on the clock, you know, double time after eight. And uh, so it became really expensive. So obviously uh, you were into Rick Baker makeup. That, that was a very different type of experience of Planet of the Apes. It had to be just exhausting to do. Well, you know, the thing with this makeup is that um, we, we shot the entire film and wrapped everybody and just had the transformation to do at the end. So that was the last thing we shot in this film. So I had done the entire movie, um, which helped in terms of what this transformation was going to be. It was certainly climactic from Rick's standpoint, and, and the only reason we did that was for his schedule. He wanted to get as much as, as preparation as he could, um, and that was the thing that he and John, who went, you know, they'd go back years doing little Super 8 kind of movies. When Rick finally uh, agreed and they got a chance to do this film, what he asked John was, I need time and money, you know, but I need the time. And so John said, yeah, whatever it takes for you to do this. We don't know what it's gonna look like, but just be sure, I wanna see this transformation right before your eyes, no smoke and mirrors. I want it to happen in an apartment, you know, and in bright light, in bright light. Yeah. and the transformation, I want it to be, you know, so you can see as this two-legged man go into a four-legged, the quadrupedic, you know, that was the big discussion. Quad, you know, you want a werewolf, a four-legged, dog from hell and, and Rick tells the story of he had a big dog like a Newfoundland kind of thing and he goes yeah I'm gonna make 
and his his he basically was designing this 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 wolf to look like his dog, um, which he had at home. So, uh, and nobody knew certainly you know what it was going to be like for us from from the standpoint of what Griffin Dunn and myself, what we were going to have to go through. There were no actors we could call and go, hey, have you worked with Rick Baker? What's he like? You know, right. no, we were all pretty un, much unknown. Um, you, when I met John Lannis, it was literally in his office at Universal, and he was casting the parts so that these guys could get over to Rick's shop. And this was like in the fall of 1980, October, November, go meet Rick Baker, you know, get these two roles cast so that Rick can get the molds started to make, you know, the arms and legs and things. So uh, when John, when I met John, he just said, here's, I want you to read the script. And when we got talking, and he was familiar with me through basically the Dr. Pepper commercials, and he, he has since said, you know, if these guys, if it were, he, he wanted Jim to be likable characters so that the audience could understand and identify with or empathize with their, the pain they go through. And so, based on these commercials, he was agreed to see me and we got a chance to talk. I told him I'd certainly been to England. I, I, I backpacked, but I'd done it on a bicycle on my own when I was a student over there and went around in Ireland and, and he thought that was pretty cool. And he goes, well, this isn't quite like that. You know, um, Read the script and, and call me tomorrow. And I went, oh, okay. And reading the script is you just see like a one sentence type like, David transforms into a werewolf. And you turn the page. So you didn't really understand what it was going to be. What is this going to be? No, not at all. There's nothing really there to talk about. How long is it going to take? Yeah, there wasn't really anything to um, to go on other than I wonder what that's going to be like. And, and we found out uh, pretty quickly because you know days, a couple of days after I got this, every you know the, the wheels started rolling. You know my agent gets the offer. I agree to take this role. I have to go over and meet Rick Baker. And the first thing I do, I go to Rick. Now, Rick Baker, if you just roll back, he, you know, he seven Academy Awards, has this huge building in Glendale, California, has, you know, probably 80 employees working on all these masks and sculptures and painters. And, you know, uh, when I met him, he had rental space, like a garage space oh. over, you know, with like, college guys as his apprentices, right. uh, just sort of going like, this is going to be fun. <laughs> and I walk in there and, and, I, and he goes, what role are you playing? I said, I'm playing David. And he goes, I feel sorry for you. <laughs> that was the first thing he said. I went, I, I, how about like, this is going to be fun and what a great role. And because when I heard that, I went, I wonder what he means. Well, what we started with was these big vats of this fast drawing, you know, alginate, the, 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 the adhesive basically that starts the molds and uh, it was not anything I'd ever experienced before. You know, you start off with your whole arm just sticking in a vat, you know, and as it dries you can pull your arm out and you do it with your leg and you can eventually get your leg unstuck. Just now we're going to do your head. And that's when it gets really personal, you know. And you got to just go to that happy place because when this stuff starts going on in your head, you can't hear, you can barely breathe. And you're inside, and they're going, "Are you okay?" You know, and you're going, "Yeah." And I remember saying, "Have you guys done this before?" And they went, "Once." <laughs> oh. oh, this ought to be good. <laughs> so you know, you do it, and you get out of it. And they go, "Okay, that's one. We need four more of these." Oh. And you go, "Oh," and, you go, and we need a couple of expressions. So you have to hold like a, a snarl or a, you know. So it's wow. it's just uh, 
if you haven't, you know, if you're at all claustrophobic, uh, you're going to be, you know, you're going to be. And, um, and it's just part of the deal. And, you know, as I said, this was at a time where I was going, sure, I'll do it again, you know. Gung-ho, what do you need me to do? And every time, every step of the way in this film, there was always a challenge. It's like, hey, come on, tomorrow we're going to go meet some wolves. Really? Yeah, the real wolves. They, they're not actually in the zoo. These are privately owned, you know, like exotic animals. But they're not trained, and, uh, but they've been around people. And we're going to use a couple of them in the scene, so we'd like you to just come over and see, you know, meet them. Oh, meet the wolves. Hope they like me. Yeah. Wow. And so, and that was one of those days where you go over and you meet these wolves with this, you know, crazy Baron von somebody who has his big estate and he has wolves as pets in the back of his estate. And how did they find him? Thank the, you know, location manager who found out, you know, how, and this is really not as pre-Google, who's got wolves in the London area, <laughs> you know? And we meet these wolves, there's three wolves and uh, they are, it's semi-docile, but they're going, they're untrained, and, you know, just move, you know, don't really, you know, no loud noise, don't move fast. And I said, what are we going to do come shoot time? You know, this is, the scene calls for me not exactly going, taking my time getting out of this cage. So came time for the shoot day, you know, it was like, uh, uh, how have they been? They go, well, they've been fed. Oh, good. <laughs> things, <laughs> all right, things, so far, so good. But I said to John, this is going to be one take. Come on, I'm, I'm naked and I'm in this cage. It's late in the afternoon. The cage is built by the set, you know, so it's it's not a real cage. And this thing going up the back is built by the crew. But I found out on this take, and you can look at it and see, it starts to pull apart when I'm going up it. Like, uh-oh. I thought it was going to break off and I was going to, you know, crash and startle our friendly little wolves who were there. So it was one take thing, you know, a couple of couple of cameras, one take, get up, get out, done, you know, wow. live to tell about it. Because, you know, as I say, who knows, they, they don't tell you, they're not like dogs where, they're, you know, a dog gets mad or they snarl at you or ears go back or you kind of can get a sense if a dog's upset with you, barks, gets really, shows his teeth, wolves just kind of look at you with those yellow eyes. And, and they can jump. I mean, this one wolf could jump 10 feet. I'm not kidding. I mean, you could go right up to the top of this wall, you know. And uh, yeah, we saw that. Wow. It's pretty crazy. So anyway, that was one of a number of scenes. The other thing is, you know, you're kind of going, really? Uh, we're in the zoo, you know. We're in the Re Regents Park Zoo. We have it till like 9 when they open. Well, of course, movies don't go like by the clock. So it's like 10. And we're still shooting, and I'm supposed to go run and grab the red coat, you know, and take off. And it's the red coat that I'm going to wear because I'm trying to get out of the of the of the zoo. And so I'm going, you know, why do they have extras over there? And they're going, no, those aren't extras. The zoo's open. <laughs> so there are all these people in the zoo, and we're shooting over in a special area. But still, come on, guys. <laughs> you know, this is just the kind of stuff that goes on on a movie set sometimes when you think you have everything in control, but you really don't, especially this movie, because it wasn't, you know, the, the biggest budget you'd ever see. And uh, we got the shot, and, and away we went. And, and uh, again, you had to sort of just have a sense of humor about it. And what I did was, you know, I mean, you have to go into that place where once the cameras roll, you're in that world of the movie, and you're the character. 
So anything can go, anything happens, whatever happens. Sometimes things happen that you don't want to happen, of course, but I'm just talking about how you prepare yourself as an actor to do the scene that you're about to do. Um, and it has to be in that world, and I try to keep myself in that space. Not like actors who you know live the part day in and day out, but I mean just in terms of when we get ready to roll, now it's going to be going into my dream or my world, and whatever happens doesn't seem so odd, like you're naked and you're running across the street, or you know, you're going down the wood path and it's 45 degrees. Uh, you know, I was thinking about that today. Yeah, the temperature was like this, but not sunny. England's never sunny, at least it wasn't during the, you know. When we were shooting in the beginning, now we're out on the moors and we're hearing sounds and the raining. I go, we're in England, what did we have? Rain machines. So we have rain, it's pouring rain. And because they want it to be dark and spooky, you know, you can't count on it being rain. So they had all these rain machines while we were getting soaked. Uh, just a lot of fun stuff that happened. But, you know, we, Everything you see in the movie actually happened. There's no trick, there's no special, you know, that, that crash in Piccadilly Circus, for example. That was a scene that was not, they had no permits for. They weren't going to allow this film crew to close Piccadilly Circus, which is a big thoroughfare, you know, a roundabout of like five major uh, arteries come into Piccadilly. So they weren't going to give permission to shut it down and re try to redirect traffic. So we did it at like five in the morning just before dawn, dead quiet, and basically stole the scene. It's a scene where we had cameras on all the buildings, and we had stunt guys on all the streets, and on action, they all come into the thing, into the circus, the Piccadilly Circus, and crash. And in, in about, you know, 30 seconds later, you're cut, 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 and then everybody just drives off, and like it never happened. And I remember being there because I wanted to see this scene. I go, look at this. They just met. This thing comes in, big crash, cut, and dispersed. And the roads were still open, and it's like it never happened. Now, they would then go to a set. They had a second B location, they call it, where they built the, you know, kind of a replica of Piccadilly. And so they can do all those inserts, shots of close-ups of, you know, getting hit which they intercut with that big master that they shot and stole. I think John Landis even did a Yeah, he did. Very, you know, hey, I'm going to do a stunt. He crashes into, a, you know, a glass, fake glass thing, which is so John, John's statement. When did you know that your life was going to be hell? Because they first they did the cast, then you're watching Griffin Dunn getting these incredible makeups. When are you like, and he was worried about me, and they're doing that to him. When did that realization that you were just going to be? Oh, as far as what was the with makeup? The makeup? Yeah. Um, yeah, you just knew. I mean, there were uh, no second thoughts. Well, you, you, you know, you're so far into it at that point. You okay. know, you're. What I didn't realize is the pro, you know that that transformation took five days, ten hours a day in the makeup chair before we went out on the set. And that's, you know, going, hey, Rick, come on, you know, hey, Rick. And he, he you know, he wasn't going to go out and John would come around, how are you guys doing? You know, so we'd get there four or five in the morning and get out on the set around two, three o'clock and shoot. For And the thing about it was, Rick, John is, was, and is still to this day, as far as I'm concerned, 
one of the fastest directors I've ever worked with in terms of being decisive, going, that's it, that's what I need, we're good. And he did this with Rick. So he, Rick's been preparing his things for months. We finally get it applied to me, which takes hours. We get out on the set, and the first take, boom. John goes, good, we got it. And Rick's going, oh, no, no, wait, wait. We we gotta we, we gotta do it again. We gotta do a couple more. And John would say, "Well, what else does that hand do?" You know, there'd be a prop, the arm, which was the first thing we do. That arm stretches. Well, you know, so I'm holding a fit. I've got my arm behind my back, and they're holding this, you know, this replica of my hand, my arm, and this thing stretches. And we do it. And I look at it. Cut. Good. We let's move on. And Rick was determined not to move on, you know. <laughs> no. I said, what are we going to do, it hands up? You know, how many times, how many ways? I wasn't saying that. It's just John and he talking about, what else does it do? It stretches. We got it. Same with the head. The head was mounted on, a, on this platform, and the wolf's head shoots out that snout that they were calling the, what do they call it, the changeo head, that would mechanically move forward. Well, it only went about like that. So on you know, action, cut, good. No, wait. <laughs> you know, so we had, so it'd be like, Rick, we gotta keep going, you know. But then it got you know, a little bit more, like when I'm in the floor, I was not expecting that. I'm in the floor now flailing around in this, you know, this this body which is rubberized is is pretty primitive too, because it's got poles in the floor so that the legs and the feet would move. You go, and there's guys underneath there just moving the you know. And you're kind of going, this is pretty primitive, but is it, it's, you know, is, is it going to work? And, uh, but I'm basically, like as you see here, you know, from here up, it's me, and the rest of me is underneath the floor. Well, that, that was a five-hour morning, you know, going, could I get out? No, you can't get out because you got the thing attached to you. So, so could I just get a break? So the, the way to take a break was they just shut all the lights off because it's hot on these lights, and everybody just walks off the, the set. And I'd be sitting there going, I can get through this. I'm pretty sure I can get through this. Wow. So when he gets the Academy Award, are you like, what about me? Hey, Rick! <laughs> he thanked me, you know. <laughs> I remember getting a mention, you know, which was nice. Uh, sure. He, he mentioned it, and it was, you know, but it was a category that was created because this film, and The Howling, and films that were coming up were creating and doing effects that had never been seen before. So. They had to create this category, and Rick wins and mentions the film. And even that, though, I have to tell you, you know, and, is that this wasn't a runaway hit movie by any stretch of the imagination. 1981, it came out. Siskel and Ebert, you know, interviewed us, and, and uh, they were still, you know, as were other critics, wondering where do you put this movie? How do you categorize a film that's funny and dark and horrific? I mean, I, I've met people over the years going, we couldn't stay. We had to leave as soon as you got attacked. You know, I went, we, well, I wanted to leave as soon as I got attacked. But, you know, there, there were a lot of those people that didn't know what the movie was. And the, 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 the marketing campaign was John Landis, the guy who brought you Animal House and the Blues Brothers. Yeah, a different kind of animal. So that this is, you know, he wanted people to be sure that what they were getting in for, and a lot of people didn't. They went, let's go see that. John Landis movie, and got you know frightened, scared to death, and uh, freaked out. So initially, as I said, the critics weren't particularly, you know, raving about this movie. But over the years, 
the appreciation for the film has improved, you know, to the point where, I mean, here I am at you know, Horror Realm talking about this movie. We had a 40th anniversary last year, 1981, this movie came out. Um, it's over the years been one of those films that people point to as far as practical makeup. You know, the bar's pretty high for this, uh, for, for practical makeup, and this particular film shows that, that CGI is, you know, in the wrong hands, cannot be so scary, you know, is not so fantastic an effect that some films have gone back to practical makeup um, yeah. because of the fact that there's more control. Uh, you know, in those days, when the beginning of the CGI, they used to ship it overseas to finish and have these digital engineers, you know, fix doing what they were told to do and sending the movie back. And you get back whatever it was you spent a third of your budget on and CGI, and, and that's what you're stuck with. So I, I can't imagine that, you know, there were directors who would see what they got and not be really happy with it. I don't imagine that, because there wasn't the control over it. You weren't, it wasn't in-house. And that has since changed, you know, as far as finding out how to do it, do it for less, having it done in-house so that you can see what the creature looks like or what effects you need. And, and so that improvement has been made. But, you know, think of the movies that you've seen that were early CGI. Just weren't the Hulk. Remember the Hulk, when the boing, boing, yeah. dripping around. You know, yeah. And and you can mention that there are a lot of films that you initially think were going to be cool, but uh, were disappointing in my view as far as being frightening. And so uh, I never expected the film to you know have the legs, the sort of you know appreciation that it's had, particularly because. Um, uh, of the length of time, the fact that it wasn't a huge budgeted film. Um, it's certainly worldwide though, as far as DVDs go. I mean, we go to any country and you can buy American Werewolf in the new 4D, or now, you know, NECA has the creature that has come out that people are buying. Um, it's, you know, it's a movie that you can, I think it's part of the reason it holds up is because it has London as a backdrop, which is kind of a timeless city and could be in any era and the buses look the same. and the, cabs are still there. So, you know, it, it doesn't look so outdated as a 1981 film. The only thing that's changed are the actors who are 40 years older. <laughs> now, I, I heard a legend, I'm wondering if you can confirm it for me, that Stanley Kubrick actually had a 35 millimeter version of a movie and he repeatedly viewed it. Do you know oh, if that's true or not? No, I, I don't. That's um, one of those legends that yeah. I've, I've been trying to get somebody to confirm. John Landis years. knows, you know, where all the bones are, you know. uh, wow. but yeah, but I've been fun, you know. John, we've done uh, some shows over the years. John has promoted a book, and Rick Baker's also had like this two-volume book. I don't know if you've seen oh, it. Oh, it's like seven hundred. Yeah, it's huge. Of his, volume, it's a pictorial yeah. of his work, uh, and they've come out to promote that, and and we've you know been together at a couple of different shows and done panels together which is pretty fun. Uh, I did one panel, which was pretty interesting, with all the guys growing up, all the makeup assistants, all the guys that were on the crew, uh, and what they've done with their careers and, and, and their perspective over the years. Is, and um, to a name, I mean, John and Rick particularly, with all of Rick's Academy Awards, the most questions he gets about his American World in London of all the stuff he's done. Um, so it was fun uh, to be with him in a couple of different uh, panels to hear them talk, and it's so funny because John and he, uh, you know, argue back and forth. Still, if I could only have five more minutes, you know, oh, I could have made. Because he wasn't crazy about the wolf, 
But you know, one of the scariest moments is in the subway station, oh, in the underground. Oh, you know, yeah. people have always talked about that. And, and I've always believed that the less you see of a creature, you know, the more your imagination can go on. What the hell is that? You can sound it, we call it sound, you know, the shadows of it, but you don't really see it, so you don't get to study it. As soon as you reveal the creature, you better be good, you know, or else you'll see a movie like Signs, which is one of these examples of like, you start seeing these little creatures and it wasn't scary for me anymore after that. Yeah, deflates. Um, yeah. And, you know, people also ask, were you in the suit? No, I was not ever a werewolf uh, in the attack scene because they were, it was ridiculous. This, you had to put this thing on and uh, one of the funny stories, I'll just tell you, I know I want to finish up, I don't want to do the go over like other people. Um, <laughs> the, uh, so Rick's, this is like one of the first nights, this is, you know, not the, the first week of shooting and this is when Griffin gets attacked on the moors and we're out shooting at night <coughs> and Rick has his first, it's Rick's first night on one of his appliances and it's the head of the wolf who attacks Griffin, you know, as we're out there hiking. So Rick says to Griffin Dunn, hey look, I want to get two of these heads. And these, you know, they took you know, all the hair, the teeth, I mean months to make. So go easy on this head. And when we take and take one, Griffin's like, you know, whatever he said. I'm like, yeah, sure. Take one, he attacks, and Griffin just goes berserk and practically rips the, the head right off of Rick's arm. And they cut and Rick's pissed. He's like, my wolf. What you've what you done to my wolf? So he gets to take two. Rick goes, okay, we don't play that game. Take two, he beats the living shit out of Griffin. I mean, just pounding him with his head. And Griffin's like getting just mauled by this wolf head. That's what you see in the movie. And, and Griffin and Rick, you got to And the other thing is, anytime Rick operated anything, you had to look at his face. Because Rick was, he's like a mild-mannered, shy. If you saw him in a store, he'd look down. You know, he is not exactly an extrovert. But as soon as he gets in one of his makeups, he becomes that creature. So you'd see, we'd see him on take two, like, this demonic guy, beatish, you know, going, whoa, this is the side of Rick. He also loves to do apes, you know, that was his thing. And you look at his resume, I mean, King yeah, King Kong, uh, Planet of the Apes, the Greystoke. first one, Greystoke, uh, Mighty Joe, what was it? Mighty Joe, Joe Young. Young. Yeah. These are all Rick Baker apes that he makes, and he's in the suit a number of times, and so he just loved playing an ape. People and don't know that the 1976 King Kong was not stop motion. Yeah. The first one, it's Rick Baker. It's Rick Baker, and he's yeah. in there doing it. So he, he um, yeah, just yeah. a terrific guy. And But as I said, he's so laid back, and you know, and now he's retired. Primarily, I think the studios were starting to tell him how to do his makeup, you know, and how they wanted it. And he'd look at him like, I create, I'm the guy, you know, I'm the big, category. I, I, yeah, I'm the guy, and you're telling me how, so he had enough. So now he just sits, he has his house, has this in Toluca Lake, nice, nice section of LA, and he's got where he and his wife live. And next door, he bought the house for his studio. So he just walks next door into his studio and creates. Stuff. You'll see it on Instagram if you guys look for, for the Rick Baker, you see some of his latest sculptures. He's just in there doing it for him, you know, and doing it because he, uh, that's what he does. I mean, he talks about the first time he was making monsters, he was using his mother's oven, you know. 
and then to become a seven-time Oscar winner is pretty cool, but <clears throat> that's what happens. It's amazing. We don't really have time for questions from the... Yeah, I know. I've talked too much, but, uh, you know, I appreciate you guys coming here. It's fun to... To, uh, it's fun to do these shows because it's an opportunity to meet people and see. I have to say, just to end by saying, the impact this movie's had in, it's in ways that I would never expect. Not from so much as an actor, but just to see. A lot of people wanted to get into makeup. You know, A lot of people wanted to do special effects. They were inspired by films like this and wanted to get into it from not only either as a hobby or trying to make a living at doing it, very difficult to do, not to mention it's one of the first movies people saw in the horror genre and turned them on to horror films. So, for that, I thank you. Thanks for coming tonight. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.